Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. The prophetic imagination is the ability fueled by the Spirit of God to perceive an alternative future or reality. And we saw how the Old Testament prophet Isaiah had a prophetic imagination and could envision a world different from his own. We also talk about how we need, in order to fuel this prophetic imagination, in order to see the world differently than it is today, to see the world as it one day could be, to see the world as God intends, in order to do this, we have to have symbols. Uh, because information simply is not enough. We need symbols. And we talked about the symbol of baptism and communion and how they spark our imaginations for a world that is flooded with new creation and unity around the table. And these two symbols anchor us, and there are certainly many other symbols uh, which spark our prophetic imagination. And we mentioned that next week, when Raw Tools is here, we are hoping that this firearm that is turned into a garden tool will be exactly that, a symbol that inspires or sparks our prophetic imagination. Uh, That it will be a symbol to see a world without violence and a world of peace. Uh, I should mention the prophetic imagination is never for the purpose of wishful thinking, but rather it is always meant uh, to move us into hope, to give us hope, and then draw us into participation in that new world. So we need symbols, but today I want to talk about another key element that will spark our prophetic imaginations, and that is we need story, or we need narrative. Okay, so in order to imagine, in order to fuel this prophetic imagination, because without the imagination, things will never change. Things will never change if we cannot imagine a new way. But in order to fuel that, in order to spark this imagination, we have to have symbols. Uh, Turns out that God is pretty wise, and he gave us some symbols to anchor us. But we also need story. We need narrative. We need to know of what story we are a part of. And we need to be drawn into a new narrative that will move us in new directions. Uh, And so what I want to do is I want to take just a sampling. My scripture today, I'm not preaching on the scripture per se, but the scripture I'm going to read is going to serve as an example of what I want to talk about, uh, of how story reshapes us and moves us in new directions. So if you have your Bible, you can turn in Luke chapter 10. Uh, I want to read verses 25 through 37. Uh, Or if you have your smartphone or tablet, you can click there as well. It'll also be up on the screen. Uh, But this uh, is a familiar passage of Scripture. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, And it says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? The expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who then is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus told this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, but when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus then told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In this familiar parable, you have the unlikely story of a Samaritan that helps a Jew who has been robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. Now, it is well, knowing, well known that one of the compelling parts of this parable is that in this time period, the relationship between Jews and Samaritans uh, was strained, to put it lightly. Uh, in fact, these are two groups that don't get along at all. Uh, and, and it's interesting because Jesus challenges us then to be a neighbor, just as the Samaritan was a neighbor to the Jewish person whom he should have had nothing to do with. He had no social obligation to help out, and yet he was there doing that. And the point, of course, is that we should treat those who are not like us as a neighbor. Uh, but perhaps a more compelling view is that in creating such a scenario, or we could say it this way, in telling such a story, Jesus is asking or perhaps forcing the listener to imagine a world where the social boundaries that separate us from one another are gone. Jesus, in telling this story, is asking the listener, perhaps forcing the listener, to imagine a world where the social boundaries that separate us are gone. In other words, Jesus offers them an alternative story of society and societal structures. Here is a person that had no social obligation, no moral obligation, based on the rules and structures of society to help this man out. And yet, Jesus says, in order to stretch our imaginations, this man, the least likely of any, is the one who actually helped. He's asking the expert in the law to expand his imagination, to see a world where these two people groups could come to one another's aid. This is a in-your-face, revolutionary story. In other words, this is much more than a moral lesson that tells us to be nice to people, right? Uh, and isn't that how we start? That's how we start this, the understanding of this story. And that's where we should start. Oh, look at this. The Samaritan was nice. You should be nice too. <laughs> the problem is, is when we've read this story over and over and over again, and we're still there. <laughs> but we need to begin to realize and see just how revolutionary this story actually is. It, it's a radical story that challenges the assumptions of the expert, that the expert in the law had, and it asks him to live into a world that doesn't yet exist. Do you see what I'm saying? In fact, part of the way that God wants to bring about this new world is he wants to find people who are willing to live by new rules. 
And go and do likewise is this invitation of Jesus at the end to go and live according to this, this world of which the expert is unfamiliar. The world where Jews and Samaritans can come to one another's aid and be generous and benevolent toward one another. It's a world that simply does not exist, and yet Jesus is inviting this man not only to see it and imagine it, but begin to live into it. Are you with me? In fact, Jesus' parables are all about this same thing. (laughs) If you want a sweeping overview of what Jesus' parables are doing, this is precisely what all of them are doing. They are promoting the prophetic imagination because they are asking the listener to imagine alternative social relationships. And they are inviting the listener to imagine a world as it it doesn't yet exist. A world that is organized differently than all of the conventional rules are exactly what the parables are trying to do. For example, the, prodi- the, the parable of the prodigal son, where the son asks for the inheritance in a move that does not make sense to me as a father, the father gives the inheritance, right? The son essentially says to the dad one day, I wish you were dead and I had all the, and my share of the money. <laughs> what? <laughs> and the father's like, oh, okay, here's the share. The son blows it all, realizes the mistake that he's made, and wants to come home. And the father, a man of dignity, runs to the prodigal son. What is this story ultimately doing? This story is inviting us to imagine a dignified father who runs to his wayward child, And and this stretches our imagination to see a father who is endlessly benevolent and loving toward his children. It's trying to stretch our imaginations as to what God is really like. Because even early on in society and culture, people had some baggage anytime you said the word God. It came with a whole bunch of assumptions of what that means. And Jesus, is, in telling this parable, is trying to stretch our imaginations to see a father who is endlessly benevolent and loving toward his children. Or how about the parable uh, where the workers who get full pay, despite how long they worked. So at the beginning of the day, a master goes out, and early in the morning he hires a worker. And then in, mid-day, in mid-morning he goes out and he hires another worker. At noon he does the same thing. In mid-afternoon he does the same thing. Right in the final hour of the day, he goes and hires another worker and then at the end of the day he lines them up in reverse order of how he hired them so the one who's worked only an hour he lines up first and he's paid a full day wages so the people in the back of the line are like this is going to be a sweet payday because I worked all day but on and down the line they go a full day a full day's wage a full day's wage a full day's wage. And of course, by the end, the person who was working all day early in the morning is, is outraged. This is no fair. This, how, Master, how could you be so unfair? And it is Jesus is telling this story in order to expand our imaginations and see and begin to see a master who is unequally generous. All of these stories, all of the parables, if you were to line them up one by one by one, all of these stories are a contrast to the taken-for-granted assumptions of the world. And they scream that the world can be organized differently and we can learn who God to see who God really is. 
because they offer an alternative story to the same old tired stories of violence, separation, hierarchy, etc. And so what I want you to see is that all throughout the New Testament, and particularly in the Gospels, what we have is Jesus offering us a different story. We need symbols to spark our imaginations. But over and over and over again, Jesus gives us an alternative story to be a part of. And he invites us in. Is this making sense? Now, I want you to understand this. This is really, really important. Jesus calls this new way of organizing the world. He has a shorthand way of talking about it. And if we don't know this, we'll miss it. But Jesus' shorthand way of talking about this new way of organizing the world is called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. In other words, the kingdom of God is not how you get to heaven when you die. The kingdom of God is not a shorthand way of being in heaven when you die. Right? And if you read Matthew, if you read the Gospels, particularly Matthew though, if you read it through the lens of Jesus is only talking about how to get to heaven when you die, you're going to miss so much. But if we begin to realize that kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is the shorthand way that Jesus talks about this new way of life, this this pointing us toward this new world that God is bringing about, then then all of a sudden we begin to realize uh, that, that the kingdom of God, what Jesus is talking about, is he's using it to talk about the new world that is organized under the full reign of God. This is what the world looks like when God is fully in charge. This is what the world looks like when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is not a collective way of saying the people who are Christians. That's called the church. (laughs) And so the kingdom of God is this new world. Does that make sense? You guys are a quiet crowd today, and it's making me nervous. So let's practice. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. Even if you don't, even if it doesn't, thank you for saying yes. Uh, So what I want to do, so I hope that we've kind of set the groundwork here. The prophetic imagination is beginning, empowered by the Spirit, the ability to see the world differently than it is. In order to do that, we need symbols. And in order to do that, we need a new story to be a part of. And the story that Jesus is inviting us into, the shorthand way of talking about that, is called the kingdom of God. Another way of of invitation into that is called eternal life. In other words, eternal life is not just living forever after you die, but eternal life, if it's eternal, then it stretches both forward and backward, right? So you are living your eternal life right now. So eternal life is not just quantity, it's also quality. So when the expert in the law says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not just a question of how do I get to heaven when I die. This is a question of how do I enter into living in the ways of the kingdom. Okay? And what Jesus says is he invites him into a new story that stretches his imagination. In fact, If you were to ask me primarily what is my role on Sunday mornings, it is to do exactly that. It is to stretch our imaginations, to see the world differently than it is, to to begin to see the world as God intends it, and invite you into it. 
That's largely what my role is. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't stop at telling stories or parables. What he does is he lives it. His very life becomes an embodiment of the kingdom of God. In fact, if you were, I, I, would, I would just say that everything Jesus does or says is either a demonstration or a proclamation of the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus says and does is either a proclamation or a demonstration of the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is all about. He's about showing us this brand new world and what it looks like. And so he doesn't just tell stories about it. He actually lives it. His whole life becomes a proclamation and demonstration of this new way of organizing our lives together that he calls the kingdom of God. And what I want to do is I want to look at five different concrete ways that Jesus embodies the prophetic imagination and gives us a new story to be a part of okay and i promise they're short some of you are like five we're going to be like here forever right uh but it's okay these are these are short okay the first one is this jesus embodies and proclaims forgiveness forgiveness now earlier this year we did a whole series on forgiveness uh, and we learned, do you remember this? We learned uh, that forgiveness is absorbing the blow of sin upon yourself, refusing to take it out on the other, thereby ending the cycle of violence and revenge. Forgiveness is how the cycle of, of violence and revenge are ended. And so forgiveness is refusing, in other words, to respond to evil with evil, violence with violence, hate with hate, betrayal with further betrayal, etc., etc., and what we learned in this series is that forgiveness has huge implications for our personal life and relationships, right? Uh, and many of you responded positively to that, to that sermon series. But what we didn't explore in that series is the social impact of Jesus' message of forgiveness. In other words, by proclaiming a message of, of forgiveness, Jesus was criticizing the powers that be. And he was offering to us a new way forward. I want you to listen to uh, Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann. Now, if your name is Walter Brueggemann, you have no options in life except to be an Old Testament theologian, right? It's just like such a cool name. Uh, which, by the way, if you are interested in the content of this series and exploring it more, uh, this is a great source book. We ripped the title off for the series. So the book is called The Prophetic Imagination. So uh, if you are interested in reading a little bit more about some of the stuff that we're talking about in this series, then this would be a great, great read. Um, it is not huge, but it is dense. So get ready to like swim through mud as you make your way through this. And if that doesn't sound great, I promise it is. <laughs> okay, so, so here it is. Uh, so here's what Walter Brueggemann has to say about forgiveness. He says, forgiveness, and I've got this quote, good. Forgiveness was Jesus's most endangering action because if a society does not have an apparatus for forgiveness, then its members are fated to live forever with the consequences of any violation. Thus, the refusal to forgive sin amounts to enormous social control. You with me? If, if society has no mechanism for forgiveness then the person withholding forgiveness has enormous control because you are always held responsible for your violation. And here, in come, here comes Jesus 
offering forgiveness to those whom society had said, you are forever cast out because of that one thing you did. Right? And they would literally cast people out of the city. Cities were surrounded by walls that had gates, and they would say, you did this, you're like that, you're deemed unclean, you're deemed whatever, you are now outside of the city, and that was your life. But in comes Jesus with a message of forgiveness. You see, forgiveness didn't just have personal implications, but it had social implications as well. And in offering in offering forgiveness, Jesus was not only opening up new personal freedoms, but he was setting up a new way of relating to one another and literally calling into question the very powers that be. He was saying, it doesn't have to be like this. His action of forgiveness was stretching the prophetic imagination of the people that would dare to follow him. Okay? I know this is, I know this is thick. I can tell on your faces. (laughs) Uh, But work with me. We're going to get through this. Now, Sabbath. So the second one is Sabbath. Do you remember when Jesus um, heals on the Sabbath and the Pharisees jump right in there? The Pharisees, they're the ones who are like uh, hyper about the law. They had memorized the law and they were the law. They were the police. They were going to make sure that you did everything according to the letter of the law. Uh, and so on Jesus, and one of the things you couldn't do on the Sabbath was heal or do any work. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. The Pharisees jump right in there, upset that Jesus has broken the law. And he says to them this, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in that one sentence, Jesus essentially calls into question the powers that be again. And he says, you have choked out the life of the Sabbath with all of your rules and you have tried to rule over it when Sabbath itself is a gift. And so Jesus is again criticizing those in power, pointing us to a new way. And I would say to you that Sabbath is just as relevant to us today because of this. Sabbath is a refusal to be identified by productivity. Come on, somebody. In our culture, your value is directly connected to what you produce to the point that the very first thing we ask any person we meet, we ask the question, what do you do? And then we size them up, right? And so Sabbath keeping... And Sabbath is not about a set of rules on a particular day. Sabbath is about God honoring rhythms of rest and play and work. You should work hard. You should rest hard. (laughs) You should play hard. You should take your vacation, right? Because Sabbath is this way of recognizing for yourself and any others that my value is not connected to my productivity. My identity is not connected to what I do. And so Sabbath is this cessation of productivity and consumption. Because, listen, exhaustion is necessary, is, is, is a necessity of the scarcity mindset. Exhaustion is a necessity of a scarcity mindset. So in other words, if you see the world as there will never be enough, so I have to keep getting more, then that will lead you to exhaustion. 
And any kind of mindset that has there's never enough, there's never enough stuff, there's never enough money, there's never enough time. How many of us have said there's never enough time to get everything done, right? When there's never enough, a scarcity mindset, then exhaustion is dependent upon that. And let me tell you, and and Walter Brueggemann says this, this is absolutely brilliant. He said, exhausted people make great shoppers. There's never enough of anything. The wheel always churns. I am exhausted. And therefore, I am more tempted to believe that buying this thing or getting that stuff will end the exhaustion or make me happy. Uh, Wayne Muller, in his phenomenal book called Restoring the Sacred Rhythm of Rest, uh, says that when people are marketing to you, they are not marketing a product, they are marketing a lifestyle. So if you buy the $5,000 outdoor kitchen, you will have time to barbecue in your backyard. So what do we do? We buy the thing, don't change our lifestyle, and then we never barbecue in the backyard. Right? So they're not selling you the product, they're selling you a lifestyle. Come on, this is good. This is like five sermons built into one. You see how I did that? I snuck it in there all under the umbrella of how Jesus embodies the prophetic imagination. Hey, let's talk about table practices. Table practices. It is well documented in the Gospels that Jesus ate with sinners. Now, when we read that, we think that Jesus ate with the immoral, and that is true. But more than that, the, the shared t- he shared a table with those who were deemed by those in power to be less than. I want you to hear me on this. Jesus shared a table with people who were determined by the powers that be to be less than. And Jesus shared a table with them. In other words, laws had been created that determined who was acceptable, who was unacceptable, who was right, who was wrong, who was valuable, who was not valuable, and all of those things were written into the laws. And so it wasn't just, quote, immoral people, it were people that had been put into a category by the powers that be, and Jesus shared a table with them as a way of calling into question what the people in power had said. Okay? Now listen carefully. In our country, we aren't that far removed from laws that did the very same thing. The systems, though, are still there. That is evident. The goal of the prophetic imagination is not to change the laws. It is to change and heal the systems that created the laws. That's the goal of the prophetic imagination. The prophetic imagination is trying to move us in a direction that will not just treat the symptom, but treat the cause. And as I mentioned last week, things never change because we cannot imagine another way. The goal and the role of the prophetic imagination is to enable us to see another way. So what Jesus was doing by sitting and sharing a meal with those whom the powers had determined were not acceptable is he was offering to us an alternative way to organize the world. He was bashing social barriers. He was erasing lines. Because table fellowship in that culture, as in ours had huge social implications. The way we share our tables has so much to say about society, who we value, who we don't value, who we befriend, who we don't befriend, which is why this table, 
as I mentioned last week, is such a prophetic picture that every single week, we ourselves, along with churches from all over the world, gather around the Lord's table as a way of prophetic action to say that whatever organizes the world does, does not operate in here. In here, we operate by a whole different set of rules. And the goal then is to spark our imaginations so we take this out there, right? Table fellowship. Forgiveness, Sabbath, table practices. And this is not a hot button issue. Women. (laughs) Jesus associated himself. Some of you are like, he picked Memorial Day weekend to do all this. Yeah. Uh, So Jesus associated himself with women that were not his family. And by doing so, it was actually a break of proper boundaries. And in the minds of many religious leaders, it was morally questionable. So Jesus, just in the way in which he associated with women, was morally questionable to many religious leaders. But when Jesus let the socially outcast woman touch him in Luke 7, or spoke with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, or healed the woman who had a flow of blood in Mark 5, these were all, and here's the quote uh, for the screen, these were all Jesus' proclamation of God's reign, And the attendant healing, eating, and community building was not to be only a male enterprise, but an inclusive one. Amen? (laughs) Jesus is is going into a society and, and sharing a message about the equality of people, the equality of genders, that we still haven't got a hold of. (laughs) Right? centuries old, and here Jesus is, is pushing the envelope. That this, this, I, I love that quote, this, this, um, this reign of God, Jesus' proclamation of God's reign and the healing and the eating and the community building that goes with that, that goes with God's reign, will not be a male enterprise only, but it'll be an inclusive one. That's good. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Then compassion. Compassion. Now, we're doing five, there are many others, because I want you to get a sense that Jesus' entire message and ministry was an embodiment and a stretching of our imaginations to see the world in God's way. And all of these thousands of years later, we are still working on it. And it is our role as God's people to continue working on it, to continue pushing forward. And so the last one is compassion. Jesus showed incredible compassion. And compassion is not just a personal feeling of solidarity. Compassion is a critique and invitation away from becoming numb. If we can become numb to the pain of violence in our culture, or numb to hunger and poverty around us, or numb to corporate greed that frustrates human flourishing, then the principalities and powers can continue to thrive. 
Because the principalities and powers want you to become numb. Principalities and powers, the biblical term, meant to point us to uh, not the boogeyman behind the bush, uh, but rather evil systems, evil structures uh, of which the enemy of our lives has a heyday. In other words, there is an enemy to the kingdom of God, and he also is seeking to establish structures and, and positions and all of these kinds of things, and the biblical term for that is principalities and powers. So when Paul says, your battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers, he's saying, the, as soon as you see your fellow man as the enemy, you've got it all wrong. It's the systems that are driving that. Uh, it, it's the systems of which that human being who has infinite worth and value and is loved by God, it's the systems that that person is participating in that is the real enemy. That's what Paul says. So that's what I mean by principalities and powers. Uh, and so what the principalities and powers want is for us to become numb. So what Jesus does is he embodies the only antidote to becoming numb, and that is compassion. Because compassion breaks us out of numbness. I think I made that word up. Uh, numbness and seeing our neighbor. Compassion breaks us out of becoming numb and allows us to see our neighbor. In fact, compassion is necessary to carry out Jesus' teaching because a numb person cannot bless their enemies. A numb person is incapable of serving the poor. A couple weeks ago, we, two or three weeks ago now, we uh, hosted Faith Family Hospitality. And I was, through that experience, um, made aware of some of my own, the own, my own ways in which I had become numb and therefore was incapable of having true compassion. Um, I was numb to homelessness. I, I knew we should show compassion and I occasionally did my best to do so, uh, but never really felt compassion for those experiencing homelessness. Uh, until I served at our recent FFH. Uh, it changed me. And, and it changed me because I got to know people. Uh, I built relationships. Uh, we laughed together. We shared meals together. And, and what I realized in doing that is not only that I had become numb, so I wasn't truly capable of having compassion, but as I built relationships, compassion began to arise, and I began to see the infinite worth and value of these families. I began to see how difficult it is for them to uh, do things or participate in things that I simply take for granted every day. Uh, and I began to see just how hard they are working to make life work. Um, one of the families, the very first night, uh, was coming into the program for the first time, and so they had all kinds of questions. And uh, I can tell you one of, the, one of their questions was this. Can I bring my blanket into the room? And, and that struck me to the core. I, I, hadn't, I 
like in that moment, it was just like the, this shield over my heart cracked because I have never been in a place where I had to ask, can I bring my blanket into the room and home that you have made for me for the evening where I get to sleep? And the answer was, of course, this is your place for a week. Whatever is yours that helps it feel like home, you bring it in here. And I saw the sense of relief on their face as they realized that this really is their place for a week, that they know where they're going to sleep and, and the burden that that lifted. And so I, so I have to say that my experience in, in helping at Faith Family Hospitality changed me. It allowed me to, to have compassion and break through areas of my life where I had become numb. Well, I have to tell you, the very next week, the following week, I received a call from a family that was facing eviction. And this was a family that wasn't just a stranger on the street. We had, uh, uh, they had a, a casual connection to this church. And in the past, I probably would have been numb to their circumstance and refused to help. Uh, but this time, I heard their story, and I heard how through a cancer diagnosis and now a job loss, that they just weren't able to make ends meet. They think they have a plan of how to make ends meet every month, but because of the timing, all of this, it just they weren't able to make ends meet, and that they're, they're facing eviction. And so I took time to hear their story, and now with, with the board's blessing and approval, we as a church gave that family a little bit of extra money that they needed to stay in their home. Now, there is certainly discernment that is needed on who we can help and for what and, and a recognition that we can't help everyone all the time for everything. But we can, church, wake up to compassion. Because when you look at forgiveness and when you look at Sabbath and when you look at table practices and you look at how Jesus treated women and how Jesus had compassion, you begin to see and you begin to recognize that from start to finish, Jesus was not just telling stories. Jesus was the very embodiment of the kingdom of God and he was telling us and showing us, I want you to stretch your moral imagination. I want you to stretch your prophetic imagination and see the world as it could be. Amen? Because the empire wants you numb to the needs of others and wants you numb to the cost of your own comfort. But, but, but compassion can call us out of that. And Jesus embodies that by his spirit. He moves us in that direction. And so church, can we be a church of compassion? Can we be a church of forgiveness? Can we be a church of Sabbath? Can we be a church that honors the equality of genders? Can we be a church that doesn't just talk about the prophetic imagination, but lives it out? Because the purpose of prophetic imagination is never just to move us in wishful thinking. It is always to invite us in to a new story. And it isn't easy. And I don't imagine a day that will come when it ever is easy. At least on this side of the Lord's return. 
but we continue to push and press toward that. And so, Jesus has shown us a new way. My prayer is that we will explore, and that as we explore and retell the story of Jesus together, that our imaginations would be sparked to envision a new way of life for ourselves, for our community, and for our world. Amen? Amen. Let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thanks for your presence with us. And we pray, God, that you would... um, that you would help us, that you would be with us as we endeavor to walk this road of our prophetic imaginations. Um, God, the last thing we want is to feel guilty. The first thing we want is to be moved in your direction. And so God, if, if, there's, if there's guilt hanging over our heads, I, I pray that you would Uh, Use it to move us in a direction. Um, But mostly, God, I I pray that we would be inspired. Inspired by the life of Christ. Inspired by the message of Christ. That we might see the world as, as you intend it. And that we might do our best to live into that. And God, in the moments when we don't do that perfectly or in the moments when we become numb to pain or injustice or those kinds of things, God, I pray that you would give us opportunity uh, to know compassion, to show compassion. And so God, be with us in all of these things. We need your help. We need your guidance. We need you to empower us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.